1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Dr. Danica Ramsey-Brimberg and your host of this episode of New Books and Irish Studies under New Books Network. I am excited to welcome Fintan Walsh, archaeologist and author of the recently published The Road to Kells, Prehistoric Archaeology of the M3 Navan to Kells and N52 Kells Bypass Road Project. Welcome, Fintan, to the project. The podcast. Sorry. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Danica. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Would you tell us a little about yourself?
1: Okay, well, um, I'm a primarily a field archaeologist. I've been working um in the field since the late nineties basically. Um was well over 20 years, so quite old. <laughs> um yeah, I studied in Queen's University of Belfast. Um and since graduating in '97, I've worked for numerous uh, archaeological consultancies across Ireland, and my primarily have been working on large-scale excavations across Ireland on road schemes and other private developments. So, got to see nearly every part of Ireland through the years, and excavated nearly, well, not every type of site, but um, I would I would think quite 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 a few of the ones that are. Um, that you would expect to find uh, in, in
0: And was that how you got involved with the excavations along the, this particular road and the bypass as well as the process of publishing, the synthesis of the findings?
1: That's right. So the company I worked for at the time, Irish Archaeological Consultancy, um, were one of the contractors for this scheme. Um, and uh, as it happens, I was the excavation director for one of the one of the larger sites there at So... Um, through that, um, I was involved in the projects on the ground. And as it came into the post excavation stage, where, where reports were written and all the specialist uh, data was collected, I had a bit more of a role at that stage. So um, to myself and my colleague, Jill McLaughlin, we got the task of pulling all that information together, getting reports out the door. And I was handed the task of trying to combine all this information into a digestible book, basically, which was part of the um the contractual requirements for the team as well. But um yeah, it it, it 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 was a task of taking all the site data and turning it into something interesting. Not interesting, but digestible I suppose. <laughs>
0: But it is really interesting, um, and with all that information, because you cover in the book everything for from 4,500 BC, so the late Mesolithic, to 600 AD, the early medieval period. How was that process of trying to condense all of that information from the 43 sites?
1: So um, I suppose it was worthwhile, or it was, it was useful to be part of the report, writing, phase and interaction with specialists and all of that that came about in the process but um there's quite a lot of information between all the sites in terms of you know the data the specialist results the real dates, etc so what we did is we we basically we story mapped it in a way you know we created a big sheet and we drew out the scheme marked on the sites and then we, we, we wrote down notes and the pictorial imagery of what the what each of the sites were what the date ranges were what kind of uh, archaeological uh, material came from those sites. And from that, basically building up a timeline, we tried to tell the story um, from the earliest inhabitants in the Mississippi period right the way through, uh, just in reference to all the other sites, in reference to the landscape, and bringing in all the environmental data. There's, there's, when we do these games, there's a huge swathe of environmental data that comes through with that through the charcoal and Analysis and we're quite lucky as well that a pollen pollen was done nearby as well. So, um yeah, I, I think I think setting out a, a story map, if you like, um, really helps to to bring all the information together. And that was this.
0: No, and the book really nicely integrates both that information within the text, but also incorporates text, graphs, and tables throughout the book, sort of fully more explaining what is in there in the text, um, and then. A lot of the podcast listeners tend to be even later than my time period. So that I tend to cover the earliest you cover even earlier. They tend to focus primarily on modern stuff. So with such a focus also that on Kells and its monastery and this focus, why should scholars and the public look at the prehistory of the site and the surrounding area? What makes it so vitally important?
1: Well, I suppose the, the information that we've gathered tells the story of, you know, or maybe get inference about why why this area became um, important, but it's really telling the the, the origin story, if you like the 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 it's the prehistory. So people have been living in this landscape uh, for four thousand years, uh, well, for more than four thousand years before Kells were established, obviously. Um, and that would be true for a lot of scape- landscapes in, in Ireland. Mead is particularly archaeologically rich, rich as well, but it was interesting to build up the backstory to the hinterlands of Kells and how over time that landscape developed and the nature of the archaeology leading up to the um, establishment of Kells as well. or establishment of Kells is an important um, centre in the prehistory and history basically. So the I suppose the road scheme itself is just a small snapshot of the landscape. Effectively, it's a it's corridor that's in general randomly uh, it's a random sample of the landscape. What we have here is just um it's just a small little sample of what the bigger picture will be, but it does give you an idea about how population has changed over time, being um level of I suppose interaction with landscape and how we can see through the book and through the evidence how there's fluctuations in population growth and decline etc and where the concentrations of activity are centered you know so um it all ties together and <laughs> leads up to that point i suppose um but the, the history itself is, is, is very interesting there's some very important discoveries here
0: and it's such a foundational time like foundational time period especially because then in, it's You see life and you see the vibrancy of it, but you also see how incredibly resilient the people are with looking at the different populations and how they move and how there are some unusual aspects to it that you don't necessarily see elsewhere, but also that it's the potential for more. seeing how people interact in this landscape. So with this, for those unfamiliar, the Excavations, as you mentioned before, were published in the book. Were the product of rescue archaeology, so carried out prior to the highway and the bypass. What were some of the upsides and downsides of conducting this type of archaeology here?
1: Well, I suppose the 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 upside is, um, I suppose, in, in one way, it provides a, a you know, unique opportunity to set or look at a sample of the archaeological landscape because when the road is built. <clears throat> everything within that um, welly, or, uh, everything was we we investigated fully. So there was geophysical surveys, there was head trenching to identify sites, and then those sites were fully excavated. So there was uh, quite a number of sites to be excavated over over time, and um, it, it, it just creates a huge body of information and uh, archaeological resource, you know, to, to build from. Um, I suppose some of the Downsides, it's, it was a long-term excavation over, over well, well over a year anyway. So that meant working in some um, difficult conditions. I think um, there was times there when we were working in Glamellum that it seemed to rain every single day, <laughs> and we had every, every type of rain imaginable. Um, tricky, tricky to work during the winter, it was delicate archaeology as well, but overall very satisfying in, in the results. At the end of the
0: day. And then going off of that, many sites are multi-period, like Kilmainham, as you just mentioned, while others are single, whether that's a um, uh, Ballybeg. Uh, did there either have advantages and or disadvantages, and are there any trends regarding movement or reasons as to, to why this might have happened?
1: Okay, so in, in some ways this might be slightly arbitrary in a way because some of the larger sites, the more complex sites, were found in areas where... Um, where there was more land taken by the road, if you know what I mean, so that Kilimanum, um was a large interchange built at that location. So there was a much larger, larger um, landscape tract um, investigated, and within that area, we find every nearly every phase or every every period of prehistory of uh, across that area, it, it gave an opportunity to look at. The landscape in kind of a wider context, you know, if you move into the, the other parts of the road scheme itself, the, the road corridor is quite narrow. So um, and in some of those narrow road corridors we find more isolated archaeology. It's like Pallybeg or some of the airport mines, etc. Um, but in the larger uh, excavation areas, I suppose, we found a wide range of archaeology through numerous phases and at Kilmainham we have um Archaeology spanning the early mythics right through the Neolithic into the late mythic Bronze Age, all periods of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age and into the early medieval period as well. So a full picture there, really. Um, But the peripheral archaeology were, you know, across across the rest of the scheme, in some instances where you just find isolated features or small pockets, they tell the story, they tell their own story, you know, that's away from maybe focal areas or areas of increased uh, activity. There's still peripheral activity, like people going out and, and little hunting camps being found away from the main focus of the main settlements. Or, um, you know, industrial features like uh, uh, kilns and that type of thing were actually uh, to try to keep them away from uh, settlement focus. So it, it all goes up into the bigger picture, really.
0: And then, how does uh, you talked about the mentioned the talked about the natural landscape? How big of a role did that play in shaping the inhabitants, and vice versa?
1: Um, I suppose the, the, the there's many sites, many uh, Bronze Age lines uh, of fair found along the scheme. and You know, they're, they're they're typically found in in um, dryland wetland that the faces you know close to water, water source. Whereas the waters needed to, to operate these sites. So basically, you know, the Folk fea, hot stone or stones are heated on a fire and dropped into a trough of water to bring the bring the water to boil to cook or bathing or you know there's lots of different ideas about what they were used for. So you know that in some cases their location of them are um dictated by by landscape variations. You know, some of the um other settlement sites are on nice flat plateaus in some cases with nice vistas, etc. Um but um Cake Stone Glebe, it was, you know, you, you get a sense that the the happens were wary you of know, the underlying geology, even to the point of the landscape, because there's a woody, um, free drying gravel ridge overlooking the, the black water, you know. So, like, some of those locations <clears throat> were always nice and dry, elevated, um, in, in good locations, um, with the river itself running right through the landscape and the river, Blackwater River, was a major natural um, feature in the landscape. You can imagine, you know, it it, it ties into the Boyne at, at Navin to close out to the RC and it would have been a major routeway. You can imagine some of the earliest inhabitants would have travelled the river up into the into the, um, the the heartlands. You know, so it was suppose it was it was a natural source of food and um, it was also a major rootway the major rootway before some of the roads were built.
0: And then to what extent did the scientific evidence, so the paleoecology, radiocarbon dating, etc, inform upon and fill in the gaps of knowledge developed from the artifacts or structural analysis?
1: Um, well that's it. So the obviously uh, through analysis of, of finds and pottery and feature types and even house house types, you know, you can get a pretty good idea of the um, periods and the main occupation periods. Like in the early mid periods were very clearly defined early with the houses, lovely big square or rectangular houses um, that were that were very clear and defined. Um, some of the radiocarbon dates. We're very focused on the type of radiocarbon dates that we took and what uh, how we selected samples, etc., to really try to re- refine um, what we already knew about them and try to refine the dates um, for those. Um, but the radiocarbon dates, as as a collective data set for the whole scheme, is very interesting because when we plotted them across the board, you can see fluctuations in population over over time periods. So obviously. Population and even and the archaeological evidence is quite low for the late Mesolithic in this in this area. Um, as you come into the early Neolithic period, you see uh, an increase in activity, like in every other parts of the country. In these kind of low-lying areas, you know as you get into the Middle Neolithic, the evidence drops off, and um, it starts to increase again as you go into the Late Neolithic, where we have uh, evidence of uh, the timber circular permanent and other. Uh, pottery and other sites. Um, and as you go into the Bronze Age, then you see a gradual increase in, in activity and uh, population as well. And this is like this is a common trend across Ireland, you know, around the middle Bronze Age peak. Um, there's nearly a boom time uh, you feel it, uh, in Ireland. Um, and that's, you can see these trends in the original carbon dating evidence as well in the graphs. Because you go into the Late Bronze Age and then into the Iron Age, and there's a big drop off again. And the Iron Age, are as uh, the Iron Age, uh, I suppose, has been characterized in some cases as as the Dark Ages, and for a reason, you know, there's there's big fluctuation of population there before it increases again. Get into the early, into the early, early et So it's interesting to see that. And You can also see in the graphs as well volcanic eruptions, etc., where where that comes into play, and tying in with the use of or the uh, boom in uh, seal drain kilns, so fluctuations in weather where you needed more seal drain kilns to buy the grain, etc. So it all ties together.
0: One of the most well known structures of the late Neolithic period is Stonehenge. Could you talk more about the Kamenum III ceremonial complex?
1: So the the Kamenum inum three uh timber circle very interesting site and we, we've used over this as to its interpretation let's say that the the I should have maybe said start as well the 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 book has been written with um in consultation with a lot of different specialists and um archaeological experts and environmentalists the academic editor for this book was Dr Owen Rogan and he was interested in coming across with a lot of the ideas of interpretation and how we, well, how the the book was formed as well, how we get the information across. We did talk quite a bit about Colmarion 3. It would have been, obviously, a a wooden structure. Um, We we believed it would be freestanding. There was was two other smaller timber circles just to the north and south of it as well. so, so looking at all that, we, we had to come up with an interpretation of those remains. You know, I suppose if you look at the Stonehenge uh, landscape, Stonehenge is seen as, um, related to burial and burial practices, etc. Where as timber circles are seen to be more uh, into monuments celebrating life, I suppose. So if stone is for the dead, then wood is for, for life. Um, so we've interpreted that site as a place of uh, celebration, you know, for um, social gatherings to celebrate. Harvests um, are, 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 are different uh, times during the year, but also, like, there's clear evidence there at minimum where there's um, offerings made as people enter the site, whether they're placing special objects into the portals as they enter the site, or making uh, e- even uh, ritual deposition of some bone et cetera, that type of thing, but also potentially feasting as well. Feasting is the word I'm not sure, but at least having food as part of the ceremonies of the day.
0: Which is something that you see even, I know at least from my research, you see it even later within the time period. You see it in the early medieval period, um, the ritual feasting. Aside from, you just mentioned, um Specific de- um, depositions, but you also talk about this in the book with um, particularly beakerware. Are there any other signs of structured deposits at the sites?
1: Um, well, as I say, at at, Kil- at Three, at the timber circle, there there are very specific uh, deposits in in certain features as part of those ceremonies. But um, then the deliberate deposition of material or objects into the foundations of buildings. Um, Something that you see across the millennia It's almost ingrained into the human psyche in some kind of form. Um, cause I know that in, in, in Ireland, it still happens as well that when a house has been built, that people may put special objects into the foundations of buildings just to, uh, as part, as part of the, at the construction stage, you know. Um, so we, we do see, uh, even in the houses, that objects were placed in the foundations of the houses. There, we saw evidence of it there in the Bronze Age as well. At the Grange Bronze Age structures, where it seemed that objects were placed into the into the foundation trenches. I suppose it's all down to the bigger picture of legitimising place and uh, connection to the to to the buildings and and to the um, the homes as well. But. Uh, as I say, in the beaker period, it seems to be a very specific thing. And um, there's been a lot written about the deposition of beaker material into into, into features we see it at coming in as well, where beaker pottery has been placed into a specific type purpose.
0: Thinking about along these lines of ideas of purposeful construction, why should we view the features, including the burnt mounds, um, that you talk about that is talked about in the book um you on page 107 there was a really um there was a quote that i really liked was um as part of a mosaic of settlement features in an occupied organized landscape and not only as isolated features in marginal settings so um why should we view these features in this um as being part of that
1: um, i suppose it's specifically about fort mounds uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I suppose interpretation about what they were used for I suppose and and they are really cooking sites I suppose the question there is you know their their location is selective in terms of in assessment of water but they're also probably in the periphery of settlement as well but who owned them I suppose is the other question and uh, were they were they you know uh, could be open to various people or various various family groups using them at any time. Um, so I suppose, um, yeah, they 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 are one of the more common sites, or well, the probably the most common site. But um, if you look at it, you have a multi-purpose multi-purpose site that's used for various activities across the spectrum, across uh, landscapes um, on nearly every scheme that we investigate. So, um, they are part of the the social fabric in that kind of way, you know.
0: In the book, you also talk about with the aspect of living life and people um, living together. You talk about the evolution of housing, which is common and expected considering the large span of time period in the book. Uh, But you mention in the book that the late Bronze Age reverted. Could you explain that further and whether there are any indications as to possibly why?
1: Uh, This is just part of the trends that we see across the board, you know, um, fluctuation in, in, in house types. If you go back to the early medieval, Thick, you've got very, what seem to be very sturdy, well built rectangular houses. They're quite large, you know, some would probably be the same size as um, as historic Irish vernacular uh, colleges, you know. That um, seems to be a bit of, you know, the, the exception to the rule in terms of in, in the Middle period, because as you move on from there, the that phenomenon of the uh, early medieval large rectangular house dies off. And, um, into the middle and late, you don't, the evidence for structural remains is not slider, you know, it's not as pronounced and harder to find in the record as well. And similarly, you see the same thing in the Bronze Age, only this time with large round houses where you come into the middle Bronze Age and find a number of very large, um, circular, uh, Houses are very well constructed and leaves a very distinguished um archaeological trace. But again, as you move into the late Bronze Age, you don't seem to see that. The evidence that we get are again, this is just a snapshot of this overall landscape. But the um, structural remains of those houses seem to be a lot slater, not as well built, and not can't be sure what's going on there. But there's definitely fluctuations, and maybe in in the late Bronze age population focus moves away from the uh wider landscape and this bit more focus into the um into more centralized habitation on, on et etc so
0: and then looking into this um in the book you um how did then moving from life to talk, thinking about death, how did the funerary landscape and then the burials rituals change over time and space?
1: Uh, or the lack of burial evidence it, as well, because in the early mythic period, we have no evidence of burial in our archaeological record for this scheme, but that's to say then that the burials were, were, were in, in tombs, etc., cetera, centralized uh, communal settings um, collectively. So um that that's feature of the new obviously, and then into the Bronze Age you see more individual burials in uh, cremations, etc. And actually at a <clears throat> um we actually find some cremation deposits in uh, a larger rock outcrop, which is just in the middle of that area, which is unusual in some form but the cremations were actually placed into hollows or into gaps in, in the rock itself. Um like in terms of burial markers, it's a natural stone outcrop, but that was used, that was utilized as, as a focal for, bur- for burial. Um, and again, as you move through the, the Bronze Age, we have, um, we have isolated commissions of cremations in groups in different parts of the scheme. And then moving into the late Iron Age, early medieval periods, you see collective burials in, in uh, grave cups. Etc. But sometimes, uh, as we kind of see, that these are deliberately placed, or locations are chosen to legitimize uh, boundaries between groups, etc. Uh, and we saw that at Grange. So I, there, I suppose another question there might be that the absence of barriers in the Scheme doesn't necessarily uh, give the full picture, because it's, it's all depending on whether are communal focused and maybe outside of the scheme or maybe a bit more uh, across the board and it's you know the the isolated burials and cremations etc that, that that you'd expect is what we're picking up on these schemes as well
0: oh. and then how does this area looking at this compare to in the, this the evidence in the blackwater valley in the vicinity of kells Compared to the rest of Ireland, and how does it increase our knowledge of the prehistoric period within Ireland?
1: Well, I suppose the the, the area that, that the routine works here is can kind of be quite quite um, agriculturally rich, good land basically, um, and I suppose it always would have been attractive um, in, in that sense for 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 settlers. So, land is good now; it was always good and. It, it's, um, I suppose, probably one of the more attractive areas archaeologically in, in, in the past. But um, I suppose we do find, uh, or have found in this scheme, uh very similar range of sites and evidence that you expect to find in other parts of Ireland. Um, but I think significantly what we found, and maybe one of the more interesting elements or the more important elements of this is that, you know, the evidence that we find here is quite um, would would be above the norm, I suppose. You know, we we found found numerous new houses in one particular area around that Birmingham area, not just in Canadian, but just around the Kells area. Different little pockets of the habitation. The the new house at Times Park was uh, a beautiful example of this. So again, as a snapshot, you can imagine that area as a whole, um, because what we investigated was arbitrary in some form, um, that there could have been a much wider you know, like, um habitational landscape around there, you know. Quite um quite intensive it seems. So that was particularly interesting because of the numbers the numbers and quality of the middle activity in that area, I suppose. At Climatum, Pottery assemblage is probably one of the larger pottery assemblages that's been found in Ireland to date. So yeah, it's probably um, probably more interest. Actually, my my biggest interest is in the the Neolithic period, so I might be the best there as well.
0: That's completely all right. And then, what was your favorite part of the book?
1: Um, We'll just go back to what we said before. You know, like trying to get all the information together. There's a lot of scientific data. Very Actual, um, actual misinformation that we need to get across in the book. said so before we try to put a lot of that detail into tables. There's a lot of detail in the in the back of the book uh, with the actual reader carbon dates or the specialist data, etc. And obviously there's there's tables in the back as well that link to the to digital resource the DRI that has all of the final reports. So there is go back to the original material for researchers, etc. So by condensing the book into a narrative sequentially through through time um, was a conscious decision. But probably my favorite part of the book or parts of the book is where we've separated the narrative into more well, conjecture. So um, for a number of the chapters, we have um, separated grey, Grey text or grey boxes where we've maybe, you know, discussed this is what the, this is what life around the Nail of would have been or could have been like in the, uh, you know, the period. And we did it for the Timber Circle as well at or where we could just go a bit, a bit beyond the, uh, the facts, I suppose, put conjecture on it and maybe tell a bit of a story. So even talking about the you Nail know, the House at Times Park. We could go into the detail where, like as archaeologists, we always find strange features that we can never interpret fully. But we could say, well, how, why can this not just be a pig wallowing paper or something like that? We talk about the hedges and the boundaries for safe areas for children to play, etc. Um, and you know, areas that the, the these houses were, you know, linked by well-trodden paths between other. Uh, where the family groups, etc, and that the houses were places for shelter and um, security to tell stories, everything like that. But let's say that the, the the reconstruction images in the book by, by Dan Tyler are are excellent in the sense that he took the original plans from the exhibitions and extrapolated up the evidence from that based on three-dimensional drawings. So they are actually very correct in that sense. And then whenever we were whenever we were um, theorizing what the wider landscape would look like, we just didn't draw in some hedges per se. We made calls to um, experts in that field, like very matchy, in terms of um, what would a hedge row look like in that period and drew it on that. So you know, they are conjecture, but they are based on um evidence. And also, discussions with 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 people that know and, and new ideas like the the Three uh, Timber Circle is evidence of that. where we have a circle of posts, some interpreted as being a roof structure, some others as an open structure with just poles, etc. There's lots of different ways in that, but it does give an insight and separate the conjecture and interpretation a little bit uh, from from the factual elements of the book as well. So I think that worked quite well.
0: Thank you so much, Finton, for joining me today to talk about your book.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. It pleasure.
0: Thank you. No, it was really, I, I really enjoyed talking with you and hearing more about the ideas and aspects related to it um, beyond just the page. So Finton Walsh's book, um, as well as many others um, who contributed to the book, um, The Road to Kells, Prehistoric Archaeology of the M3 Navan to Kells and N52 Kells Bypass Road Project, is available now through World World Books and Transport, Infrastructure Ireland. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to New Books on Irish Studies on the New Books Network website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On next, until next time, stay safe and keep reading.